this is an interesting time of the year. Parents are planning on going school and studies. Students, I know you're looking forward to studying. Uh, yesterday, Deanna and I had the opportunity to, uh, I don't know if it's opportunity or uh, uh, as a parent, uh, we took our grandkids to a store to buy school supplies. And the time when the ding, 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 you know how the cost of that... <laughs> Parents, how do you afford it? That's my question for you. Um, yeah, $300 later, uh, they, all five kids had their school supplies. But this is a time when fall is busy. People are planning on school. And even some of you might have college students are headed away to college. And I, I think back to when my kids were at school and away from home and, and sometimes the anxiety of sending your kids to college, especially if it's a, a secular college, but it can be a, even a Christian college. The reality is we live in a post-Christian era. And I don't think we admit that as often as we should. And one of the realities that leads to fear, let me put a slide on the screen for you today, almost half of all American college students will abandon their Christian faith during their undergraduate years at a college. Half. Let me give you a couple more recent statistics from Putman and Campbell, some researchers. Young Americans are dropping out of a religion at an alarming rate of five to six times the historical rate. 30 to 40 percent have no religion today versus five percent to 10 percent just one generation ago. Now, I, I think here's the, the harder piece. Because I think this is actually true and, and just looking at where college students are at, the question is, why? I think that's the more difficult question. And I can think of a number of reasons where I, I do think at times, and thinking back even to kids around me and growing up, uh, there, there's still rebellion going on. Uh, people, young students, aren't impressed with their mom and dad's faith, and they're just saying, you know what? They're, they're hypocrite. I'm going to go a different direction. For some, I, I think it's intellectual exploration, wondering if their beliefs really are their own, and, and oftentimes they're not given adequate answers in terms of hard questions when they hit high school and college. Uh, maybe churches and parents haven't done the job that we've needed to have been done. But one change as well, many people, uh, I don't know if we realize this, many people are leaving the faith at a much younger age. So I think that in that stat, many of them already had walked away the time they get to college. They had kind of played the game before, during high school. But let me give you another stat here as well. And, and I think it points to this issue. Of, you know what? Colleges aren't conducive. They're not a great environment for our faith, for kids' faith. But look at this one. With each year of college education, there's a 15% increase that the student will believe that there's a truth in more than one religion and believe in a higher power rather than a personal God. You catch a shift that's happening with young people. There, there's a pastor, a blogger, actually, uh, that I listen to or I get regularly in my inbox and his name is James White, and he wrote a book called The Mind for God. And he, in that book, he wrote about his daughter's experience of going away to a, a very prestigious college on the East Coast. And let me just read it out loud. I don't have it on the screen for you on this one. In her first history course, 
her professor took it upon himself to announce that the entire historical record upon which Christianity is based is untrue. Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. None of his followers saw him as divine until centuries after his death. None of the Gospels were first-hand accounts. Just think sitting in a class like this. Jesus was not a religious figure as much as he was a political one. There were never, never intent to form any kind of a church. There were dozens of Gospels, all of which would, which thought to be sacred by the followers of the Jesus movement. And the four Gospels in the Bible today are riddled with discrepancies and errors. In order to pass her first exam, she had to write that Jesus was born in Nazareth, not Bethlehem, deny Paul's authorship of 1 Timothy, and maintain that the four canonical gospels are in complete disagreement on the major facts surrounding the death of Jesus, including when he was crucified, when it was after the Passover or before, or whether Judas committed suicide. Just think heading into a class and hearing that. But the reality is the culture is hard. I don't know if you're aware, but 67% of faculty members at, at non-religious schools, they believe that homosexuality is acceptable. Abortion rights, 84% would agree with that. 75% support extramarital cohabitation by the professors. See, if young adults are not prepared, they're in for a huge shock the first time they go to school. You know, parents here this time of the year are packing up their minivans and SUVs and taking off, the, you know, taking their son and daughter off to college. And, and oftentimes you think of the advice that's given, maybe even on the ride out there about drinking and sex and money management, proper nutrition. But I wonder how much advice is given on nutrition of the soul, the spiritual soul, and the importance of a grounded faith. Deanna and I... Um, have worked with either high school or college students directly for about 20 years. And it's interesting watching the reaction of parents, especially as they get older and toward college age, and how easy it is to try to build a wall around our kids and even college kids. You know, we send them to a Christian college, but folks, that's no guarantee either. So we, what do we do? We, let's, let's do a college online. Keep them home. See, it's easy to try to shield them from a fallen world, but the reality is the fallen world need Jesus. They need students who are walking with Jesus. And I think sometimes, uh, what I've seen a few times is where there's this subtle teaching mentality that says this, you know, it's us against them. The world is out here, and you know what? They're the evil ones, and God doesn't love them, but he loves you. That's the challenge. But let me read you, I'll put it on the screen, the quote from this same author. He said this in this book, I will never forget my daughter calling me immediately after emerging from her first class almost in tears over the statements made by a professor about her faith. Even with a firm worldview, coupled with years of reading and instruction that enabled her to know how the spurious the professor's claims were, she was emotionally shaken that her most deeply held values and convictions had been defamed and assaulted so vigorously. Even more, her heart was breaking over the 300 other students in the class who sat passively taking notes, accepting the professor's statements uncritically as fact. 
See, that last statement, I think, reveals really some good things. Here's a daughter going away to school, and, and yeah, it, it shook, her, shook her up a bit to hear that. But looking around to the 300 students, he goes, oh, they're taking this in. That's the kind of hearts that we need in terms of young men and women heading away to college. But I think we think the tension at the schools is new. And I'd remind you, it really is not. You know, my first uh, quarter, I was quarters back then, my first quarter was a required philosophy class. And my teacher was a ex-pastor who had decided at some point in his life that becoming an atheist was the way to go. A number of us believers were in the class and we argued we weren't equipped then and the realization that by about week two we were silent the rest of the quarter. See, it's just not new. Matter of fact, if I fast forward to ending college, you know, I went to that Christian college, St. Cloud State University, and uh, it wasn't so Christian, but the last quarter of my, cl- of that, of my time there, I was looking at a teaching degree, and if you're a teacher, you know this, there was, there's a class called Human Relations. Some of you recognize what that is. It actually started a few years earlier, and it was the first diversity training in colleges, especially in Minnesota. And that last day of class, so the last day of that quarter in the spring, this class that ended with a video, and the video portrayed Christianity by a young man who was very judgmental. He wasn't all that loving. He wasn't all that caring, and it came across as highly offensive, the Christian faith, to the rest of those people in that class. And I was, myself and one other guy, we were kind of ticked, okay, because the video ended and the class ended, and the next week was the final. And uh, we went up to the professor after the class and said, that wasn't fair. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and just kind of said sorry, and that was it. See, the reality, though, is that we have environments that are pushing back against the faith of people. Now, I, I think here's the reaction at times. As parents, if, if kids are walking away, we want to look at within the church and we say, you know what, the parents, obviously, they didn't, and then we fill in the blank with some answer. But here's where i, I got to call us back to something and remind us that it's not just a parenting issue. It's also a church issue in terms of having our students and young people walk away and toward a deeper faith. And here's where I want to get pretty pointed here. I want to say this, is that we must understand that the health of a church, the environment of disciple-making, is not determined by how many we have in our youth ministry or in children's ministries. The health of the church is determined by the spiritual health of the adults in a church. Over the years working in a church, understand that there's been very little conflict specifically about student ministries or children. And when splits happen, when churches fall apart, it's because adults are fighting and struggling and not moving ahead spiritually. That's the challenge for us. 
And this morning, there's really a call that we want to take some time over a couple weeks and call us back to the idea that we are called to create an environment that is making disciples, that's walking with people and helping them come to know Jesus as Savior and growing in their faith. And when they leave the home, that they're equipped to be a part of kingdom work. Now, I've got to point and invite you to something else as well. Um, we've been doing some leadership training here, and this last spring we had a meeting, and we, I've invited, I, I share this publicly as well, but we've been reading through a book as a number of people. We had about 25, 30 people at the last gathering. It's called Lasting Impact. And this particular book, we're going to be doing the next two chapters coming up here in October, October 9th at 6 o'clock. But let me read you one of the chapters that we're covering. Why are young people walking away from the church? It's one of the, it's one of the chapters we're going to deal with that particular night. But back to this morning. We want to step out of Mark for a few weeks to remind ourselves of what really the goal is of a church, and the goal is to gather together. Yes, we're called to worship, but we're also called to make disciples that are making disciples. And remember, my illustration here has been this consistently, looking for somebody who is far from Jesus. Now, they might be young, they might be preschool, they might be elementary, but we're walking with people to help them know Jesus, love Jesus, serve Jesus, worship Jesus. And that they would be equipped at such a place, no matter where they're at, when they leave home or they get married or they get older, that they would turn around and they would look for somebody else to come and hold their hands and begin that journey of walking toward Jesus to love him, to serve him, to worship him. See, that is the process of discipleship that we want to be about as a church, and that's why we're stepping out of Mark for a few weeks, just to remind ourselves that this is key for us. Now, last week, Steve spoke on a bee, and if you didn't notice that if, you've, if you're new here, we have four bees that are painted on the wall out there. And, and last week, Steve spoke on the first one, the issue of belonging. And belonging is critical. We belong to Christ. We belong to each other. And again, I would say this as parents, I can't emphasize this enough of how much your students need other kids in their lives to be a part of their faith. And also the reality is, is that they need other adults in their lives as well. Students need, the, the, the stats right now would say that you, they need five other adult, spiritually minded people putting into their lives to make a difference as they walk toward Christ. We don't do it alone. We don't parent alone. We don't do church alone. But to this morning, we want to go to the second base, this, this idea of this one that's on the, written on the wall, believing. And to begin with, I would say it this way, we are called to believe and believing God. It's, it's a part of who we are. Now, again, today is not exhaustive. I'm just kind of skirting the surface on it, actually. We could spend weeks on this topic. But here's the confusion. So many people believe about God. They believe information about God. They believe facts about God. 
They can memorize scripture. They can attend church regularly, but there's an issue of do we can believe about God, but do we believe God? See, that's a very different concept, believing about him versus believing him. Because one can have the facts, the information, but never have a personal reality within the heart. Matter of fact, earlier in Mark, that we're going through the book of Mark, uh, Jesus went after some people where they didn't have the, in the heart. Let me show you Mark chapter 7. Look at verse 6. And he's tell, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? And it is written, These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, here's what I believe that when we look at those stats of young adults walking away from their faith, I believe this is that many of them believe about God, but they don't believe God. That's the difference. See, believing God leads to dependence on God. It leads to trusting God. And I think the challenge is they're walking away out of church and homes and and they're not understanding the relational nature of who God is and even the relational nature of how it applies to sin in their lives. See, too many want religious activity and and being spiritual as a, as a a step, a stairway to heaven. And so being mostly a good person is tipping the scales where, you know what, we can just accept God's goodness because we've done enough, and it justifies some type of heaven. But believing in God and believing things about God, folks, it cannot meet the deepest spiritual needs of our lives. Do you realize as well that believing about God is a common denominator all across this world? Romans 1 tells us that. They know that there's a God. Cultures all over the world believe in some sort of a God. You know, I I was thinking back here last night and realized, rarely have I met many true atheists. You just really don't find them out there. I, I would say this, many, many deists. They believe in a God. They believe about God. And that's really functionally a deist. But see, the idea that just believing in a higher power gives a pass to heaven, that is not the same as believing God. And that also applies, by the way, toward Christ. What we believe toward Christ and Jesus See, many believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He died on the cross for their sins. He rose bodily from the grave, but they don't believe God. They don't believe Jesus. Matter of fact, look at James 2, verse 19. Very hard passage here. You believe that God is one, a triune God. You do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Now, do we have to believe about God if we're going to be a child of God? The answer is yes, but it's more than that. See, God's calling us to believe him. See, God has introduced himself as a creator of this whole universe. 
And he's told us that he is infinitely wiser and infinitely bigger and more glorious than we ever are. And it's because of that that he comes and he tells the world, believe me, not just about me, believe me. Well, let me give you some pieces then. And again, these aren't exhaustive as what it means to believe God. Three bullets here for to end here today. The first one is this, that only God has the right to decide what is good and what is evil. Now, here's the deal. If we believe him, we end up giving, his, giving the authority over to him. His reign, it's his world. I understand the sin entered the world and Adam and Eve took it and they ran with it and they claimed the right to be their own gods, to be a god. And the challenge for us is that we live in a culture where we've slid to the point where this world and this country is filled with people, for example, of this, we can vote on what is morally good and morally evil. So if you get 51%, this thing is evil. If you get 49%, you didn't win. You see the challenge that we have. Who's deciding what truth really is? People want the right to define what is loving, what is hateful. People want to define what is normal in our culture. People choose to use, also choose to use experience and emotions at times to define what is right. Well, I believe this. And what ends up happening is that they end up denying, and to say it this way, they deny a transcendent truth. That truth does not come from man. It comes from God. See, the challenge for us is what do we do with that? Are we teaching our kids about God is the God of a transcendent truth? If one believes God, we have to believe that he defines what is good and what is evil. But there's another point here for this morning as well. That next bullet in your notes. We must believe that the word of God comes from God and it reveals the heart of God. See, believing this book is the dividing line between many churches of today. If this is from God or it's just a, you know, it's, it's some nice suggestions to live by. And if it's just suggestions, then you can pick and choose which ones you want and you don't want. But the challenge for us is that if we are going to be a church that disciples people, allow the Spirit to change people, this book is important. And we must believe that it comes from God. Let me just remind you with a couple of verses, very pointed from 2 Timothy 3. Look at verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've heard, you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But here's where i got to push it one step farther here in this issue. 
A lot of Christians want to take this book and make it just a book of principles. And it's more than that. It reveals the relational heart of God. And as we read it, we need to listen to it to understand that he is inviting us into a union, which he uses that union to ultimately transform us. See, the challenge for us is, are we relationally looking at the scriptures and spending time in the scriptures, getting to know Jesus, to know the Father? When you begin to know them intimately, guess what? You believe him. You will believe Jesus. So the challenge, are you digging in? Are you tasting of who he is through this book? If you're not a reader, listen to it. There's lots of online stuff. Maybe you need to take, you haven't been in a while, you need to dust it off and you need to go, you know what, I'm going to take the New Testament and I'm going to do it in three months. And just underline as you're talking, when the Spirit speaks to you, just underline it. As simple as that. But He wants to connect to us relationally. But there's another point here this morning as well, that third one. And it reveals something that, that we need to understand. And look at from Philippians 1.6. It really communicates this. And I'm sure of this, that he, meaning God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the bullet here to fill in that blank on your notes. If you know Christ, if you know God, the Father, we must believe that God, is on our side as we've put our faith in him. Do we really believe that he is on our side and he's working to change us from the inside out? Do our children know that? Have you talked to your kids about that change from the inside out? Now we're going to get into it more actually next week, this issue, that he's on our side. But again, what I find, some Christians have a view of God that he's much more of a moral cop than a benevolent father. So he's a God who has a taser. And every time you goof up, he zaps you. Do we believe that? And if we're teaching our kids that, you're you're teaching some poor theology. We had a song today, Good, Good Father. Do you believe that? And how critical that is to our walk of faith and our journey, even in our spiritual maturing. See, we have a Christ who loves us. He's changing us. He's getting us ready for the wedding. He wants a beautiful bride But what does that really look like? See, I I think that's the challenge for us. Do we really believe that? And what does it look like? Well, I believe in this Philippians 1.6. There's a couple verses a little bit farther down that gives at least a snapshot or a hint of what that might look like. Look at Philippians 1.9. Paul is praying for this church of what he wants for them. Look how it goes. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. But it doesn't, it's not a fluffy love here with knowledge and all discernment 
so that you may approve what is excellent. It's a wisdom. We love people with wisdom. But it doesn't stop there. And so be pure and blameless. What's that talking about? It's about the motives of our heart, of why we do what we do. For the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. He wants our ability in loving people to grow more and more with discernment, to be blameless. But see this, do you believe that the God of this universe wants to change your heart? And ultimately, it's going to change the outside. But he wants to work from the inside out and change you. Do our children know that? I'm in the process of of reading a book and it's about the Old Testament book, Hosea. And if you don't know the, uh, the, that book, uh, or the, the book, Old Testament book, Hosea, Hosea is about God going after a sinful people. And it reveals the incredible love of the Father. It's really an incomprehensible type love when you read that book. But he was pursuing, that book tells the pursuit that God has for his people. And the question for you and I, do we believe that, that God is pursuing us, wanting to pour his love into us, change us? Matter of fact, in this book that I'm reading, it was, it's called this, Pursued God's Divine Obsession with You. Interesting title. But let me put a quote from this just to end here today that I think is just so encouraging for me. It says this, God is not like us. We conduct experiments, we give things a try, but God carries out a plan. God never does anything halfway or incomplete. When you doubt and struggle, when you falter, when you fail and fall into sin, when you lose your temper and say things you deeply regret, when you give up on yourself, when you do the same sin for the 337th time, When you quit rejoicing in God, when your friends give up on you, when your family gives up on you, when you fail to see how your life will make a difference, when you feel worse now than when you first came to faith, when when you've quit, God won't quit on you. He may discipline you, but he doesn't walk away. God is so committed to finishing the work he started in us. Paul can't even think of one thing in the entire world that could separate us from the love of God and his commitment to us. Not one thing, nothing. Do you see the profoundness of that statement? That if we know Christ, recognize God is pursuing us and he's wanting to change us. And he's wanting to use us to help other people know the love of the Father. Do we believe that? We must, if we believe God, that has to be true. And I'd even stretch this farther. You know, we're celebrating communion today. And I'd ask the guys that are going to serve communion to come on up. But do you realize that he could have started over with this world once Adam and Eve goofed up? Could have said, poof, 
We're gone. Let's build a new world. Send the other one into oblivion. And he didn't. He chose to pursue us by sending his son to die for us. And that's what we remember today. That Jesus came into this world because the Father loves the world. And he hasn't given up on this world. And he keeps inviting people to come to him and to know him and to love him and to serve him and to worship him. So today as you take communion, here's what I would encourage you to do. You can pass out the bread, guys. But as you take communion today, just ponder how much God has been pursuing you. And maybe you haven't thought about it in a while. But he's not going to give up on you. He's going to keep after you. He wants to use you in the kingdom of God. He wants to transform your heart. All because he loves you. Let's remember today.